Uh, come and have a look at it later. It's actually alive. Just seen it twitch. It might even stick around. Uh, the second is that I've never had a weather-dependent application from a sermon before, so look out for that a bit later. Um, <laughs> moving on. Uh, th- there's a set of questions which I'm pretty sure that we all ask ourselves fairly frequently in our lives. Um, they follow the theme of how can I be more or get more or do better? They're not bad questions to ask but they tend to flow from a feeling that our lives aren't up to scratch, that other people are perhaps more successful or prosperous or happy than we are. Um, You've probably heard before, it's really nice as a a sermon illustration. Sociologists have collected evidence that an individual's material contentment and happiness doesn't really seem to depend much on how wealthy they are in absolute terms, but it's much more strongly affected by how well off they are compared to their neighbours. So a millionaire who's surrounded by people who are just that bit richer than him could look around and perceive himself as having a a pretty poor lot and then, of course, start looking for ways to improve it. Of course, the media and marketing, they, they pick up on this problem for us massively Vast sums of money get spent dreaming up ways to to plant new questions in our minds so that they can then offer us their ready-made answer at the price. How can I be better at sports or more prosperous or more popular? How can I have a a better family life or better holidays or a nicer home? And and then the big one, how can I be more attractive to the opposite sex? I I would ask for answers on the back of a postcard there. Um, you might not have one to write though, so, so never mind. They're, they're not bad questions. They're good sometimes. But if they're going to be useful and not damaging to us, not break down our confidence unnecessarily, we need to have two things. First, we, we need an accurate assessment of people's comparative prosperity and contentment. That means being able to see through whatever facades we each hold up, down to the depths of what's really going on, as well as then having the wisdom and discernment to understand what, what's actually valuable and what isn't. And secondly, we'd, we'd need to be able to assess the solutions which are offered and see if they'll really be of any use. And again, that, that takes a huge degree of wisdom, understanding. And, and to be honest, it's usually beyond me. So I watch the telly and, uh, and Gillette hold up Roger Federer to me as this paragon of clean-shaven manliness. But how do I actually know that under the surface he's any more content than I am? Do I really want to be like him? Especially if I don't like tennis. Um, probably not. Links uh, will generously offer me at a price a magic solution to all my woman troubles. If I use their deodorants, I will be pursued by screaming hordes of beautiful ladies. Does it actually work? And if it did, would this actually be a good thing? Or just kind of terrifying? Um, Clearly, those are stupid examples. And as long as we engage our brains and we're appropriately cynical most of the time, we'll see through most of those. But more subtle examples do permeate our culture. Hence the massive success of self-help books and teach-yourself courses and even celebrity biographies. People are constantly looking out for the secret of success. This mystery or magic silver bullet which is going to bring them contentment. And of course, Christians, we're no exception. I, I think I've got to say I notice this more in myself and in other Christians than in other people. 
even if we're aware, in theory, that the other Christians around us are at heart deeply sinful, and that their only credit lies in being redeemed by Jesus, reformed by his Spirit, even if we know that, it's still so easy to imagine that they don't face the same level of struggles, they don't have the same flaws as us, or if they do, they deal with it better. After all, if, if those guys were all as rubbish as me inside, how could they do such a consistently good job serving church, or running such and such, or, or being up front, or, or just being nice consistently? It doesn't help that we then each instinctively hide our inadequacies beneath our veneer of godliness. Or that if we peel that back, that can seem itself like an act of holiness. So that even if someone like the Apostle Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners, Muggins here looks on and thinks, oh, how holy he is to admit that. It's difficult. But the truth, of course, is that I, or, or any Christian who steps up to address from the front, or who writes a book, or who looks out for you, or who provides this consistent godly witness in the community, they're, they're all as deeply and humanly flawed as the rest of us. But when we don't recognise that, it's easy to imagine that, like the models and the adverts, these are paragons of spirituality who must have some trick, or mystery, or bit of knowledge, or a method, or a discipline, or a, a certain spiritual gift, a magic silver bullet, which, if I could just learn it, would let me stop being such a pathetic sinner, and enrich my, my feeble spirituality. I think this is pretty much what's going on in Colossae, when Paul's writing to them. As uh, Daniel and Kenneth said the last two Sundays, Paul probably didn't know this church well. He may never have met them, but it has had reports of them through people like Epaphras. And it's a really affectionate letter. He's not writing to correct a major sin or an abandoning of the gospel. He seems to be pretty convinced that these guys are Christians and they're flourishing. We see that particularly in chapter 1 when he, he talks about their faith, hope and love, the hallmarks of the gospel at work. But there is something awry. And although he never speaks it exactly, we get some fairly clear hints here in chapter 2. There seems to be some false teaching just developing in the church. An idea, or a set of ideas, that Paul's gospel on its own isn't quite enough. And it's, it's worth saying, it's not clear that this is deliberate or malicious false teaching. There may have been individuals in the church who were cynically distorting the gospel for their own purposes. Um, it could just as well, though, have been ideas from the prevailing culture seeping in and permeating their teaching. Many of the contemporary cults and religions would have at their centre uh, certain mysteries, secrets or ideas which were only revealed to the initiate. Experiences of their deities or festivals which would set apart true believers from everyone else. And most of them, and particularly Judaism, would have uh, specific regulations and restrictions which their believers should follow. They would mark them out as different and keep them in line with their God's expectations. Help them to be pure and holy and along the way establish a hierarchy of believers. That's the pattern of the world's religions. So it would be entirely natural for the Christians in a fledgling church like this to be immersed in that prevailing culture. And so to expect and look for similar secrets 
and regulations in their own religion and perhaps then just to fit their own teachings the same kind of model so that either hidden within the gospel they'd receive or somewhere in addition to it they just wouldn't be surprised if they found further mysteries and further rules which would set apart true believers from the flock just as an aside I, I wonder how much we make that same slip are there truths which are, are so universally acknowledged in our culture that we just blindly apply them inside our own teachings? Um, for me, the obvious example is possibly tolerance. Uh, not an issue so much here, but uh, elsewhere, perhaps. The, the majority around us teaches that it's important to tolerate difference and diversity, whether that's ethnic or religious, in terms of lifestyle choices or, or whatever. And the Bible's fairly clear, actually, in supporting that, treating aliens and strangers well, not persecuting or abusing them, not judging others, when we're equally as bad at heart. But what our culture doesn't do is distinguish between tolerance and condoning something. And so for many people, the Bible's clear criticism of certain behaviours, and particularly homosexuality, it becomes a real stumbling block. How can this be a good set of beliefs? if it doesn't condone diversity and individual choice. Perhaps because we preach tolerance sometimes in the world's terms instead of the Bible's. I don't know. But here and now we do have huge divides within Christianity and I'm sure some of those are linked to problems like this, reading our own culture into the Gospel. And so when Paul's seen this kind of thing happening in Colossae, he's desperate to nip it in the bud. Some people here are standing up and they're saying it's to be a full Christian to experience full spirituality, to be properly holy. And just like in these other religions around them, they're going to need something more than just Paul's gospel. A deeper mystery, a silver bullet for their spiritual arsenal. The, uh, the suggestions they make are there in verses 16 to 23. And as Richard Weston pointed out to me the other week, they, they show the two directions that Christians tend to go in when we foolishly uh, wander off from the gospel or get disillusioned. Now, on the one hand, there's rules and limitations, works to be done. In verses 16 and 21, the things that they eat or drink, uh, the way that they treat festivals and Sabbaths, the things they restrict themselves from. In verses 18 and 23, there's the self-imposed worship, the false humility, that might mean just the appearance of being humble, or it might refer to harsh treatment of the body, uh, possibly excessive fasting and run up to special worship. And on the other hand, there's special spiritual experience and gifts beyond that of normal believers. In this case, it's the worship of angels in verse 18, the fantastic tales they can then tell of their experiences. It's easy to see why they'd be impressive. The discipline these guys are showing as they restrict themselves, the, the stories they can tell about the quality of their worship and how close they felt to God. The apparent gifts which would set them apart from everyone else. Perhaps it was compounded by their more orthodox teacher, this guy Epaphras, being a bit boring, a bit less showy. Paul certainly makes a special point of commending him to them in chapters 1 and 4. He's a reliable hard worker. Don't overlook him. Maybe they, they didn't realise what they already had in him. But for whatever reason, these new teachers, they, they're gaining a following. 
their knowledge and experiences are impressing people. Their spirituality seems to be at a whole better level than the mere Christian experience. Closer to God. So maybe there was something that the rest of the church was missing out on. I wonder if, like me, you ever long for a, a clearly spiritual gift to help your worship. Wouldn't it be fantastic, perhaps to, to speak in tongues? Able to express yourself and your feelings in clear prayers to the Lord, aided by His Spirit. Or, or to be granted a vision, you know, to see Him at work, know something of His plans with certainty. Or, or to experience a miraculous healing, to know His power undeniably at work. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Or perhaps you've longed for a better discipline, a methodology of Christian living which would help you keep that routine of day, daily prayer and Bible reading which you struggle with. Or would help you to be strong in the face of temptation, regimented with your use of time. Wouldn't those things just help cement your knowledge of God and sure you up in those times of doubt, give you the certainty in him that you need if you're going to baffle those persistent sins. Are you sometimes aware of the lack of these things? Might they cure all your woes? Well, they might all be good and desirable, but Paul says no. If you're a Christian and you've accepted the gospel, you've got it already. Everything you need and the only deep mystery that he wants these Colossians to, to cling to, to set them apart as believers, is the one that he's already given them. In chapter 1, verse 25, he, he says he's become the church's servant. He says, uh, By the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. What is it, Paul? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And again in chapter 2, verse 2, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's no new teaching here, nothing possessed by a special elite to set them apart. It's the same gospel that matters that every member of the church has received. All the fine-sounding arguments which were tugging the Colossians astray, Paul says they're just taking people captive. They're kidnapping. Something on a level with, for the Israelites of murder. Snatching people away from true life in Christ. He says they're hollow, they're deceptive, they're based on nothing except the way the world works. What was attractive to the Colossians here in these teachings? Was it the idea of being set apart? But Paul says every one of you is already set apart in having received this mystery of Jesus, this gospel. Was it the idea of uh, secrets, spiritual, deeper knowledge and experience? Paul says, you've already received Christ, in whom all wisdom and knowledge are hidden, in whom the fullness of the deity lives. 
when you've been brought to fullness yourself, you've got knowledge. Is it the idea of achieving greater holiness by abstaining from the world and humbling themselves, overcoming their sinful nature? Paul says, look, pull the other one. You've already been circumcised in Christ. Your sinful nature is dealt with. It's cut away, forgiven, buried in baptism, while you have been raised with him. All your debt cancelled and nailed to the cross. He's saying, Colossians, are you really looking for a deeper mystery than that? They're so-called deep mysteries, the, the new teachings, they're based on the ideologies of the world, the things which were vanquished and humiliated, disarmed by Christ at the cross. Is that what you want to go back to? Don't you see, Colossians, you've got your silver bullet already. It's Jesus. It's the fullness of Christ given to his people and to us. Daniel's headline two weeks ago was Trust in Jesus. Ken's last week, Trust in Jesus. He's brilliant, he's all you'll need. At the risk of sounding like a stuck record, the chapter two headline, I think, is Trust only in Jesus. He's sufficient. Trust only in Jesus. Paul says, continue your lives in him, rooted and built up in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. Trust only in Jesus. Nothing else has the power to take you through. And Paul wants you to look back next at the false teachers. Look at verses 16 onwards. Take a close look at these guys who seem so impressive. See how hollow they are. Underneath their impressive veneer, in verse 17, he says, they're peddling a shadow of the reality. Echoing the language in Romans. Uh, something no more valuable for achieving holiness and the Old Testament law was and look how that turned out their humility it's false they're, they're puffed up full of unspirituality because they've lost contact with Jesus they're cut off from the head they, they no longer depend on him as their hope as their focus they're unsupported in God's eyes they won't grow increasingly although their teaching seems slick or wise or useful look close Colossians in practice, it lacks any value for restraining their base desires. The false features, they're all about indulging their desire for recognition or authority or the appearance of holiness. Do you want that divisive and futile teaching? No. Trust in Christ. He's sufficient. His mystery is enough. Most of the application from that really falls into the next two sermons. So I'm not going to poach too heavily, but let me ask you a couple of questions. Firstly, do we want, like the Colossians, shortcuts to holiness? Maybe because of a sense of our inadequacy, or despair in the face of struggles, an awareness that the change we long for in our life is so slow in coming. Maybe from a degree of laziness, not feeling up to the hard graft of bearing up under challenges and temptation. Do we kid ourselves sometimes that there's a quicker way to becoming an impressive Christian? A better way? When you think about what would enrich the quality of your worship or of your walk with God, what comes to mind for you? Do you find yourself thinking that 
if you could just rein yourself in more effectively and resist that temptation, then your walk with God would improve. Or that if you were just more disciplined with yourself and had better quality quiet times, your various problems would fall into place. Would you struggle with the, the guilt of poor evangelism? Finding it hard to actively witness in your workplace or with your friends? Do you sometimes think that your experience of God isn't at the right level? That other people seem to benefit much more from singing, you put a hand in the air, or, or from praying in groups, and you just don't feel confident with that. You don't seem to share that depth of experience. Or do you feel less valuable? in church less a part of it because you don't have the right set of talents or gifts the, the ones that we tend to make much of Th- those might all be valuable things and, and questions worth thinking about and addressing but simply conquering something like that by willpower isn't going to bring me any closer to God all the rules and regulations I make for myself when I, I beat myself up over problems like that Even when I manage to stick to them, they lack any value in reforming my heart. At best, they just puff up my self-esteem. The truth is, we are going to be deeply aware of our inadequacies, right the way throughout our lives. But that's the Christian experience. To hunger and thirst for righteousness. To know that we're not there yet. We don't need a shortcut out of that. Because we've already been given Jesus. He's got all our treasures, all the wisdom we need, hidden in him. Our glorious hope for the future, it's sealed by him at the cross. And despite appearances, this horrible, dominating sinfulness we struggle with now, it's already excised and cut away, defeated in us. What need for shortcuts? Second question, are we too impressed? by what the world's got to offer? That's an easy question. The answer is yes. In day-to-day life, there's of course status and wealth and happiness and entertainment and prosperity and so on. But inside church too, how much of our willingness to serve other Christians is dictated by how we think that we'll be perceived? Whether we feel good at something? Whether we'll be puffed up or deflated by doing it? Those are the, the kind of considerations, of course, that Paul teaches here in Colossians. And, and Paul said, look, you, you've got better treasure to cling to than this, than all the stuff which grabs your attention. His language describing this gospel, it's the highest gain imaginable for him. Everything else just pales beside it. Do we feel that? Does the wonder of what Jesus has won for us dictate our, our decisions and our directions? Most of the time, probably not. So we need to deliberately focus on this gospel. Remind each other of it. Actively take hold of it in our minds. Let's appreciate it and dwell on it and think on it. And above all, to get the ball rolling, let's thank God for it and worship him for for Christ in us, the hope of glory. We need to cling to that, says Paul. Trust only in Christ because he's sufficient. There's one thing left to mention, which for me is, sometimes as I read these New Testament letters, a real confusion and a puzzle. Just 
it seems so unrealistic. There's such a contrast here between Paul and the false teachers. Their focus is entirely on themselves, on their experience, on their holiness, their status. For me that's understandable, I get that. Paul, he's writing here with apparently passionate love to a church of people that he's probably never met. They're not his disciples, they weren't his friends or his family. Why does he care so much? Is it for real or is this an act? For me, in my life, there are very few people that I will actually pray for semi-regularly and keep track of and even occasionally write out a text or email to. I'm a great friend. But in verse 1 to 5, Paul says he's really contending hard for these two churches at Colossae and Laodicea. He's writing carefully thought through letters to them, praying diligently, even in chapter 4, sending his friend Tychicus to them. And in in verse 5 he says he feels genuine delight for their progress. Why? That seems a bit beyond normal human friendship and devotion. I think it's because he sees in them Christ, the hope of glory. And they are an integral part of his great reward. They're the body of his Lord. And he wants them to see the same. Look at verse 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. The false teachers, they're all about the individual. The individual's learning and growing and being better than each other. That's what's made them divisive and damaging. But Paul, he knows that as well as a personal understanding of the value of the gospel and how it matches up to the challenges of Christian life, for the overwhelming majority of Christians, we'll only grow healthily if we see and are part of this body of Christ in more than just ethereal and theoretical terms. We're social creatures and we depend on a church around us. That's how in verse 7 he expects them to be rooted and built up, strengthened and taught. That's how they're going to encourage each other and spur each other on to praise and thank the Lord. Support each other in the face of hardship and temptation. They're the body of Christ. But in verse 19, instead of disconnected from Jesus, they're connected with the head, supported, held together by its ligaments and sinews, and growing as God wants them to grow. And so Paul knows, verse 2, If they're going to grow to maturity, know the full riches of Christ, they must be united as a church in love, not separated by impressive new teachings. And that's, of course, why why the command to love each other is so common in the New Testament. Look around you. Um, Or, if you're too British, imagine looking around you. Uh, it's, It's not a pretty sight. Wow. That's not so bad, but... You're surrounded by Christians. People who face the same or similar challenges to you. In of themselves, it's important we understand that these guys are no stronger or more holy. We've got a level playing field. But in each of them, and in each of us, Christ is at work. 
bring them to fullness with all the power of God. Isn't that remarkable? Let's value that. Let's rejoice in it. Let's encourage one another. The next opportunity is, of course, communion now and then. Here's a rather dependent bit. The church picnic afterwards. Yet let's be a society who bring each other closer to God, who encourage each other and build each other up. House groups during the week and our social lives together. And then here, if you're not part of a house group, call a Daniel. We need close interactions with other Christians. They are the body of Christ around us. His spirit for us to see at work. Let's bear with each other in, in love. Be patient. Let's, and this is often hard for me, but let's actually seize in our conversation with the gospel so that we keep each other on track, nudging each other always in the right direction, supported, connected to Jesus, our head. And then together, let's, let's trust in him alone, because he's sufficient.